0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel, and today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Schwal, author of the book Dancing with the Revolution, Power, Politics, and Privilege in Cuba. This book was published by UNC Press in 2021, and Elizabeth is an assistant professor of history at Northern Arizona University. Elizabeth, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I'm so excited to be here.
1: So am I. So could you begin by telling us how you came to this project?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So it started as an undergraduate. I um, danced all my life, and I wanted to combine my passion for dance and growing passion for Latin American history. Um, And uh, I was participating in some kind of historically geared reconstruction projects uh, related to staging dances um, from the early 20th century in the 1970s and was thinking a lot about dance and history. Um, At the same time, I was taking a a seminar co-taught by a literary scholar, Arcadio Diaz Quiñones and a historian, Jeremy Edelman, and it was about intellectuals in Latin America. And we read um, Fidel Castro's words, the intellectual speech. Um, and I was really struck because in that speech, he mentions both the ballet and modern dance companies in Cuba. And as a dancer, I was, it really stood out to me. I was shocked. I couldn't imagine a U.S. leader uh, mentioning artists or dancers in a, a major address, so I was just really intrigued, and found that um, by researching more, that Cuba was a really good case study for thinking about the relationship between artists and politics more broadly, and dancers in particular. And so, as an undergraduate, I wrote a junior paper and then a senior thesis about nineteen sixty s and first ballet, and then ballet and modern dance. And then when I went to graduate school, I expanded the project out to also include folkloric dance, and I. Uh, greatly extended the time frames from 19 uh, and into what it became for my book, which is 1930 roughly to 1990. So it was just a, uh, a process of kind of expanding out and honing my questions, obviously um, getting some real archival research. Um, and that's kind of how I, I came to what became my book.
1: So one of the contributions that you make in this book is to help us to rethink the chronology of 20th century Cuban history. And I'm sure we'll hear more about, um, about this in your answers to some of the questions later on, but I thought maybe you could start by giving listeners who might not be as familiar with Cuban history some guideposts to what are the sort of standard periods that we use to think about sort of the last century of Cuban history.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So I think when we think about 20th century Cuban history, we kind of start actually in the late um, 19th century. Uh, So the wars for independence, which were on and off for about 30 years from 1868 to 1898, Um, 1898. Uh, Cubans were kind of in the final thrust of um, uh, gaining independence from Spain when uh, the United States intervened. Um, and there was, this was kind of a long time coming. Um, we could have a whole other discussion about all the, the signs, the economic and political signs that the United States was interested in Cuba going back for decades. But in any case, the United States intervened. Um, Cuban independence was a little bit frustrated. It was ultimately achieved in name, um, but was frustrated. Um, And then we enter a period uh, uh, from 1898 to basically 1959, in which you have um, a lot of US intervention and involvement in Cuban economic politics and society. Um, And then kind of, there's a huge uh, dividing line uh, that came in with the Cuban revolution of 1959, which um, kind of began um, as an outgrowth of previous decades of political struggles. Um, You know, the young people in their thirties, in the 1950s um, thought about their parents and their grandparents and their political struggles both for sovereignty and for uh, social and economic um, uh, programs and gains and that rallying cry um, ultimately led to various groups um, throwing out a a previous dictator uh, who was in power in the 1950s um, and the quote-unquote triumph of the revolution in January of 1959. Um, And then we have the revolutionary period. So um, from 1898 to 1959, you kind of have this period of the Republic um, and then you have the revolutionary period. Um, And again, these are kind of just very uh, general uh, categories, but um, it's kind of like a before and after story in the 20th century uh, Cuban history. Um, And then 1990, I think is another important milestone which came with the fall of the Soviet Union um, and the end of a lot of economic and political support um, for uh, by then the the Socialist uh, Communist Republic of Cuba. So um, those are just some rough uh, guideposts, I would say of the 20th century.
1: Great. So let's start in the pre-revolutionary era. And in your book, you explain that before 1959, ballet already had an important place in the Cuban cultural landscape, even though it didn't have a great deal of support from governments in power. So how was it that dance makers in this era built power for themselves and their art form?
2: Yeah. So I found that, you know, when I started working on this project, the there was just this question of why ballet in 1959, which is ballet has kind of a, a I would say uh, an elitist history, <laughs> um, in that it came out of you know bourgeois European uh, courts and was very tied to courtly life, um, and so it kind of maintained this association with uh, whiteness of Europe. Um, or Russia, or where have you, um, and also this kind of elite taste. And so to understand why ballet uh, became an important kind of revolutionary art form after 1959, I had, you had to understand why, it, it was because it had this prehistory. Um, and as you noted, uh, before 1959, ballet was very important uh, to Cubans and Cuba. Um, it was kind of a pride, a, a point of pride And this derived, kind of, um, I would say, because of um, both a a deep interest in the arts and culture, which was developed kind of structurally by these civic associations, um, starting in kind of the 19-teens and 20s and 30s, but it was also due to the fact that there happened to be some really talented Cuban dancers that rose to fame internationally. So um, most notably, there was um, a ballerina named Alicia Alonso, who really um, had a meteoric rise to stardom in the United States in the 1940s. Um, There was also her husband, um, Fernando Alonso, who also had a career internationally, um, but he became known as more of the teacher. um, And he was a revered teacher, not just in Cuba, but um, was recognized in other countries as well. And then there was Alberto Alonso, uh, Fernando's brother, Alicia's brother-in-law, who became a renowned choreographer, also developing um, a career internationally, dancing in Europe um, and in the United States before returning to Cuba. So um, these, uh, you know, these three figures are really important. Um, I also try to talk about the fact that there were many other very important artists outside of these kinds of um, triad, which has been, you know, um, talked about quite a, a great deal in, in historiography about dance in Cuba and ballet specifically. But nevertheless, um, we have to begin with them in the sense that they uh, became notable figures. Alicia, by the late 40s, was already kind of recognized as a national hero. So um, the fact that these figures made uh, ballet into something that was tied with patriotism, nationalism, um, and had, had allowed Cuba to kind of enter the international stage through this art form helped to um, build their personal uh, capital, cultural and political capital, and also made it, uh, it it makes more sense why ballet continued to be such an important art form for Cuba and Cubans, culturally and politically after 1959.
1: So um, can you talk a little bit more about the sort of racial associations and maybe racist or anti-racist practices associated with ballet in this pre-revolutionary era?
2: Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, at least in Cuban imaginaries, ballet was very much um, racialized as white, um, and this derived from the fact that when ballet classes first started on the island in the early '30s, um, it was uh, it was through the venue um, primarily of more elite um, civic associations, cultural associations. Uh, primarily a society called Pro Arte Musical, which was, um, you know, supported opera and concert music, but also um, started ballet classes. Um, And then eventually also very much supported um, dance, uh, concert dance or theatrical dance, dance that appeared on a stage for an audience rather than say, um, you know, dance um, in ritual or revelry uh, in everyday life. And so um, even though uh, ballet started, had these roots, in in whiteness and also kind of the premier practitioners that got international um, careers and fame like Alicia Alonso were uh, white um, in in Cuban um, imaginaries. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, I found that especially starting in the 50s, um, there were people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds that also um, started their dance studies. and uh, so um, for instance, there was Jorge Lefebre who I talk about in chapter one, who um, he was from Santiago, the eastern part of the island, also kind of racialized um, as African descended in Cuban imaginaries. Um, and he received he had such talents that he did receive scholarships to help support his career. But there were um, uh, limits to what he could achieve in Cuba. And he ended up needing to go abroad and he ended up dancing with a very important African-American choreographer and dancer, Catherine Denham, uh, who was based in New York and he joined her company and toured with them in Europe. And then in Europe is where he kind of made his career and he ended up kind of living the rest of his life and career in Europe. So um, that's just one really notable example of Um, The fact that on the one hand, even though um, we think about how Cuban ballet was uh, extremely um, narrow in terms of inclusivity, it was, there were people that were training in ballet that were not white in Cuba, who uh, were of African descent or mixed racial and ethnic backgrounds. So that's an important thing to recognize. Um, And it's also important to recognize, however, that there were definite um, limits to their career, like what uh, Lefebvre uh, encountered. So um, that gives a sense of the fact that you know, um, before the revolution, uh, there there was um, limits to under to the kind of bodies that could appear and were received by um, not just companies but also audiences. So there was kind of this policing aspect um, on who. Uh, And what kind of content was allowed on more elite concert dance or theatrical dance stages?
1: So the rest of the chapters in your book are set after the revolution. And the first one of these is about institutionalization. So I think that's a word that could make us think that the story is going to kind of somehow get less exciting. And I think that it's actually quite the opposite. so what exactly is this process of institutionalization in the case of dance in Cuba? And what do you find especially fascinating about it?
2: Yeah, so um, absolutely. I can totally understand why that, that word is not um, uh, provocative. It, it does sound very dry. Um, I think one of the reasons why I was still, nevertheless, very excited by it was, Um, You know, one of the goals of the book is to hopefully um, speak to historians that have absolutely no interest in dance or performance or cultural production. Um, And, you know, how institutions are formed was uh, profoundly important to the revolutionary leaders. So the the quote that kind of opens the epigraph of the chapter is by Che Guevara. Um, you know, the revolutionary icon, and it's about this process of institutionalization. And, you know, historians have debated, um, perhaps not the most exciting debates, and political scientists have debated, perhaps not the most exciting debates about this process of institutionalization. And I found um, that there was kind of this assumption that the 60s was kind of all over the place, I'm sure there were mass organizations that were formed. There were indeed important institutions established, but it was really in the 70s that, you know, everyone uh, recognized that, you know, institutions really solidified for various reasons. And I found that dance and dancers really pushed for their institutions to solidify by the early 60s. And um, I found that these institutional um, developments continue to this day to shape what we see in the dance scene. Of course, it's changed and shifted for many complex reasons, but I was just struck by how much lasting power these institutions had. And so a big part of the story of institutionalization is about figuring out um, how to navigate these political shifts, how artists are able to continue um, pre-revolutionary, Artistic goals, um, but also take advantage of political openings, cultural openings, and also trying to grapple with this, um, you know, longer history because dance didn't just emerge fully formed out of kind of the brain of Fidel Castro, but instead, as the the chapters on the pre-revolutionary um, history detail, um, there was, you know, um, there were choreographers and dancers active. Uh, in the decades before the revolution, who would then be very active after the revolution. So um, two choreographers that I talk about a great deal in the second chapter, uh, Ramiro Guerra um, and Alberto Alonso, are already experimenting with how to um, deal or how to stage um, race and nation on on you know in choreography and they're they're trying to experiment with this in the forties and fifties and then they'll continue to experiment with this in the sixties and onward. So um as institutionalization is happening there's a lot of growing pains and there's kind of um an effort to draw lines between different genres so the genres i look at and focus on especially in that really begin to consolidate after 1959 um are uh, ballet uh which um the main national company that i focus on which is based in Havana is the Ballet Nacional de Cuba Um, And then there's modern dance, which um, for people who are not familiar with dance, modern dance um, in Cuba really comes out of, um, they they draw, the the innovators of Cuban modern dance techniques draw direct lineages to actually U.S. modern dance um, innovators because um, a really important figure in the development of Cuban modern dance, Ramiro Guerra, um, he spends time in New York in the 1940s, in the late 40s, and he kind of brings back those techniques and tries to Cubanize them, um, by particular, particularly drawing upon Afro-Cuban culture. So you have um, a modern dance form that's developing in Cuba and company, um, a main national company, which has various names um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but today is known as Danza Contemporanea de Cuba. um, And that is based out of the national theater. And then you have a folkloric company, um, which forms Third, um, and so the ballet was uh, kind of reconstituted itself in 1959. Modern dance also in 1959, the Folkloric Dance Company is founded in 1962 and that's the Conjunto Folklorico Nacional. And so as the story of institutionalization um, plays out in the chapter, I talk about how we see um, not all companies were created equal um, and they didn't have equal support. So you have ballet having the most support very from the beginning. So there's kind of this mythic story of Fidel Castro, um, who uh, visits uh, Fernando Alonso late one night, uh, brought by um, revolutionary Antonio Nunez Jimenez. And. Um, so in any case, he comes and says kind of what do you need for the ballet? Fidel or uh, Fernando quotes a number and Fidel says, I'll double it. Um and this of course kind of erases the fact that Fernando and Alicia Alonso have been pushing for this number for years. Um in any case, so uh, the ballet gets um a legally um sanctioned subsidy, whereas both modern and folkloric bands are kind of struggling to kind of prove themselves to cultural bureaucrats. Um, and audiences, that there's value in these forms and that they're revolutionary. Um, And as they try to do this, uh, modern dance has some success, um, probably uh, largely tied to the fact that Ramiro Guerra, who was, uh, you know, instrumental in developing the form and the company um, had good political ties. He was part of uh, Nuestro Tiempo, which was a kind of leftist cultural society that uh, got on the kind of uh, revolutionary bandwagon in the late fifties. He also um, had this kind of anti-racist rhetoric and discourse that he tied to, that was very resonant with the revolution, um, that you know resonated uh, with uh, political development. And um, uh, then th- another really important aspect of why modern dance was successful in getting support pretty early on was the fact that um, there was a woman named Lorna Birdsall, who, she was a US expat who was married to um, a really important uh, revolutionary notable, uh, Manuel Pinedo, um, who would go on to become, uh, you know, instrumental in the Ministry of the Interior. So with all of these kind of privileges and connections to power, modern dance is also able to secure, you know, subsidies, performance space, theaters, etc. And then you have the folkloric dance company, which struggled a bit more. And this was largely, um, due to racism and class prejudice, because the majority of the performers in the Conjunto Folklorico Nacional from the beginning were of African descent. Uh, they were also, um, they were, uh, peop- shoemakers, laundresses. They were kind of working class folks. And, um, the, the evidence of these uh, racial and class prejudices just pop out of um, memos and uh, letters and um, just documents from the Ministry of Culture, which make it so clear that there is a great deal of discomfort with funding a company that uh, supposedly um, promotes only black dance. Um, And those are the words that were used in the documents at the time. So I found that institutionalization was a very um, racially and culturally fraught or class uh, fraught um, process in which there's all of these um, prejudices that are coming up in the process. Um, And so ultimately, by just looking at salaries, at subsidies, and symbolic gestures, it's very clear that ballet, which uh, retained its kind of elite and white um, connotations, uh, gets the most support from the government.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: So you then move on to a chapter that's about gender and sexuality um, in the world of dance in Cuba. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how radical maybe the revolution was in reshaping norms about masculinity and femininity, both in the sort of dance context and more generally, and if those gender norms were sort of the same for dancers or different than they were for other Cuban citizens.
2: Yeah, that's a great uh, way of framing it, because I think that there, of course, um, the revolution uh, you know, throughout history, you can kind of see examples of when regime changes happen. Um, new regimes will hold on to kind of like older ideas, particularly about gender, um, to kind of help um, uh, legitimate the new order. Um, and so things certainly changed, um, but not in terms of a, in a progressive direction. So um, there was homophobia, and um, heteronormative, uh, you know, ideals before the revolution. And these were definitely uh, glommed onto and strengthened and um, continued in the revolutionary period with new, um, maybe even insidious, insidious um, connotations. Um, other scholars like Lillian Gebba have written um, wonder, uh, wonderful analyses of how uh, we see a revolutionary patriarchy developing uh, revolutionary versions of homophobia. Um, and so that definitely frames um, what we see dancers trying to do in terms of navigating uh, homophobia, a revolutionary homophobia that, that very much exists and revolutionary ideas about masculinity and femininity, femininity, which are frankly very traditional and conservative and narrow. Um, and so uh, the the epigraphs that open this chapter um, quote Fidel, talking about how um, homosexual people can never be full revolutionaries, and Che Guevara talking about how artists uh, have this original sin. And I think that there was always a suspicion about artists and cultural producers, partially due to um, suspicions about their sexual orientation. And dancers were no exception and maybe even dealt with this more than say writers or filmmakers, because dance in Cuba and basically everywhere else in the world at this time and even through present times um, tends to be uh, glossed as a feminine art form. Um, and this is of course something that I don't wanna say that it was you know, unchanging and um, or stagnant or what have you. There have been changes over time. Of course, dance was not always considered a feminine art, but at least in the 20th century, this has been the tendency. And as a product of this, there was a lot of nervousness and suspicion, especially of male ballet dancers, um, because, you know, ballet was so associated with the ballerina in the 20th century, and especially in Cuba with Alicia Alonso. Um, nevertheless, ballet male ballet dancers had the benefits of Alicia Alonso's kind of political and cultural capital, which allowed her and Fernando Alonso, um, who kind of led, were the leaders of the Ballet Nacional, to kind of protect their own. Um, and you do see suspicion of uh, male dancers, particularly, um, in other dance forms in modern and folkloric dance, not necessarily as inherently. It wasn't necessarily a knee-jerk reaction, but, um, there were quite a few state documents that I found that talked about, um, leaders in these forms and, um, a lot of policing of these figures, both at home and when they're on tour abroad and, uh, a lot of detailing of their, um, personal lives and partners and suspected partners. Um, Nevertheless, as I kind of talk about in the chapter, I found that dancers were able to continue working, um, whether that was at home and in many cases abroad, despite the fact that there were um, a lot of humiliating defections, humiliating for Cuba and the government, but not necessarily, of course, for, um, and, and perhaps the, the company leaders, but not necessarily for everybody. Um, but nevertheless, um, even though there were these kind of high profile defections of dancers who had the privilege to perform in places like Paris or Mexico um, and occasionally outside of the Soviet bloc, but as time went on, increasingly less so. But nevertheless, the fact that these dancers got to travel um, is a big part of their privilege in Cuban society. But nevertheless, um, unlike perhaps um, some well-known cases of, say, filmmakers or writers who uh, didn't have those kind of uh, privileges and ability to, um, you know, continue to create despite um, this homophobia, um, dancers, I found, were able to. And so I try to explain in the chapter why I think that is. Um, I think it had something to do with uh, the fact that leaders of these companies were really adept at utilizing their their power and their privilege to uh, protect their own. I think it was the fact that internationally, uh, dancers were, you know, widely acclaimed and government officials, cultural bureaucrats kind of saw the benefits outweighing the risks. Um, And I also think there was something to the degree, it was a case by case basis, but a lot of the dancers who were sanctioned or suspected, managed to, um, you know, play the game as, um, you know, was famously, uh, the phrase famously goes, um, and were able to either marry to, um, you know, make it appear as though they were heteronormative, or were able to be discreet in their um, liaisons. Um, But nevertheless, I, I was surprised by the fact that dancers were able to continue working, despite the fact that just by being dancers, by being artists, by potentially um, uh, having same-sex relationships, they were kind of outside of the revolutionary norms of masculinity and femininity.
1: So a really powerful aspect of the story that you're telling in this book um, is that the dance makers you examine have just a, a really uh, broad audience in the sense that the scope of it, of this dancing public actually uh, goes, extends to the masses in Cuba and then also goes abroad as you've just um, spoken about in your last answer. So how exactly did dance makers cultivate this audience both at home and in other countries? And what was political about the engagements that they had with other Cuban citizens and citizens of other countries?
2: Yeah, um, so I, I do love to see how, uh, you know, I talk about in the chapter how I'm, I'm a little obsessed with the audience, um, both at home and abroad. Um, and it, it's such an elusive aspect of the whole story. I think any historian who tries to talk about, you know, book culture, or even um, a- a- any other aspect where you're trying to, you know, food consumption, you're so curious about the consumer. Um, and those are often the voices that are so hard to capture or um, to understand outside of say oral history or what have you. Um, nevertheless, I was obsessed with the audience, but so were the dancers and so was the government essentially. Um, so uh, in chapter five, I talk about Um, kind of the projects that dancers engaged um, in, in partnership with the government to build an audience at home. And this was of premier importance um, for ideological and just logistical reasons. So ideologically, um, starting right after 1959, there is this hope that there's this discourse of democratization, of... um, you know, enlightenment, education, there's the 1961 um, literacy campaign. And right alongside all of this, our efforts to basically bring the arts and arts instruction to farms, to, you know, rural areas of Cuba to try to deal with this historic divide, uh, class and educational divide, which of course has um, geographic, class, and racial components to it. Um, so in any case, this is a very important aspect of uh, revolutionary ideology um, and politics and dancers see it not only ideologically, you know, sure that checks that box, but also no um, performer likes to perform to an empty audience. Um, and, you know, Cubans uh, of all types, you know, dancers or otherwise will talk about proudly um, the warm and um, uh, you know, passionate audiences that that there are for the arts, um, and this was just not an accident. You know, so um, some aspects of these campaigns involved things like um, lecture demonstrations. So there were instances when all of the companies that I look at in ha- that are Havana-based, um, and also I start looking at the belly. They come away, which uh, was based in uh, Come Away. Um, they all did um, kind of these lecture demonstrations where they would tour the country once a year, sometimes multiple times a year, and they would appear in stadiums, they would appear in factories, ice cream factories, um, you know, very uh, other types of factories. They would appear at schools, at universities. And so these performances um, were meant to cultivate you know, ballet or modern dance or folkloric dance lovers and audiences. And um, this really ratchets up in the 70s um, because for various reasons, um, one of which is kind of politically based um, there, um, after kind of there, there's um, shifts in the cultural bureaucracy, there's a kind of emphasis on more didactic art, there's greater Soviet influences, um, there's various reasons, but in the 70s, there's even more of an emphasis on kind of this mass-based artist figure um, that they're trying to create and promote. So I found that ballet um, and ballet leaders really struggled um, in that they were not really able to cultivate um, amateur or non-professional ballet dancers as well as, say, modern or folkloric dance. Um, so they weren't really able to fit in with this kind of trend of the 70s. Um, nevertheless, they continued, you know, working hard to cultivate a, a, an audience of people that were was supposed to love ballet. They did this through increased um media exposure, so radio programs, television programs, which are still around today, um, and a magazine, so those kind of things, um, and these kind of free uh performances but they also did it through, um, uh, things like, um, uh, they, they said, you know, we're workers just like you, we're going to come and we're going to perform for you. And then we're going to harvest sugarcane with you. Or, um, you know, as time went on, that was deemed like too difficult for ballet bodies or, or just too, um, taxing on their, on their instruments. And so, um, they tended to do things like pick coffee beans or something that was a little less taxing. Um, nevertheless, Um, These were all efforts to cultivate a a sense of solidarity um, with the audience
1: Um, and
2: try to almost taper over the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of these professional dancers had this power and privilege that um, their audience members didn't have. Um, they were cosmopolitan, they traveled annually um, outside of the country. So I think it's really interesting to see these tensions. Um, and it really shows some of the ironic limitations of this discourse of democracies. just as they're trying to make um, concert dance writ large, whether it's folkloric, modern or ballet, into kind of a a mass pastime. At the same time, you're constantly reifying and and finding evidence of these distinctions between the artist enlightener and the enlightened in the audience. Um, And so I I, I really find that there's a lot of ambiguity and ambivalence in that project. Um, In terms of international audiences, Um, I talk about this idea of dance internationalism, which really um, resonates with, the, I think, a a better known version of internationalism, this idea of revolution everywhere will help support revolution at home, which was just an integral part of the revolutionary project in Cuba. Um, And the more a famous version i think is medical internationalism so even in 2020 you know cuban doctors went to italy uh at the worst moments of the pandemic so that was just one example of this idea of um you know medical experts supporting um people around the world and i found dancers did the same so they not only performed for short-term gigs if you will to kind of impress uh international audiences But they also choreographed, they taught um, all over. Um, So this was throughout Europe, um, in different parts of Africa, um, throughout the Americas, and um, a little bit in Asia as well. And I think that that was a really important, it it, it had different political resonances that I talk about. So um, one is um, in terms of ballet dancers, they tended to perform a great deal in this the Soviet Union, um, there were important instances of them performing in Paris um, and in Europe, as well as the United States and Canada. And the idea with that was that, you know, I found there was a lot of um, Cuban press observed and Cuban dancers themselves promoted this idea that, see, we're not so different from you. We have a ballet tradition that rivals you, Paris or New York or um, Moscow. So there was this very uh, kind of uh, elitist almost there there's a consensus around the world that you know we love ballet, and that is what we uphold. And so I found this kind of ironic um, you know consensus between the so-called first, second and third world, third world being Cuba in this case, um, in this valuing of ballet and this effort to connect um, despite political and ideological divides. Um, I also talk about how. Um, there was this uh, effort to kind of be a leader um, in in Latin America, for instance. Um, So this I see playing out, especially in uh, ballet and modern dance, in which um, just as guerrilla fighters are no longer leaving Cuba to go support leftist armed movements throughout Latin America, you see ballet and modern dancers flooding the Americas um, to be supporting... um, companies, choreographing, teaching, etc., and spending sometimes a year at a time or going back several times um, to kind of help uh, fellow Latin American nations and be this kind of regional leader. And then finally, um, a really important aspect of this dance internationalism that I noticed was the, the ways in which um, especially the folkloric company and modern dancers, um, and particularly dancers of African descent, who um, either imagined or um connections between between Cuba and Africa on in staged productions, or there were cases in which some Cubans, um, particularly modern dancers, spent time um, in Angola um, and other places uh, and taught dance classes, et cetera. So I find that these international projects were really important, but for different reasons. And putting all these different reasons together is precisely what I tried to do with the book in that I wanted to kind of compare how different dance forms resonated and operated in the world and how these different dance forms really staged Cuba and the revolution in the, in the world. And um, I think, Another really important aspect of this international component is not only these political resonances, but this, a very key economic component. Um, in that when Cubans performed or worked for months and even a year, um, in foreign countries, they received hard currency honorariums, which was far, um, more than what they received, um, at home. And so that went into kind of developing different hierarchical forms of privilege. Um, And so ballet dancers went abroad and worked abroad the most, followed by modern dancers. Um, And then folkloric dancers tended to get less uh, international contracts in the period that I'm looking at um, in terms of post-Revolution 1959 to 1990. So that also goes into um, these, these kind of differential uh, privileges um, that I see um, and kind of these hierarchies uh, that, that we see in terms of the dance field.
1: So as you explained a little bit earlier, 1990 um, is sort of a benchmark year for the start of a new era in Cuban polit- politics. But what you explain um, in your last chapter is that there were changes in the dance world that sort of preceded, um, preceded that time frame. So what were some of the frustrations that were being expressed by dancers um, in the 70s and 80s? And what were some of the innovations that they spearheaded? And I also wanted to ask why it matters that these developments preceded the fall of the Soviet Union and then the economic challenges that that would unleash in Cuba.
2: Yeah, so um a lot of the frustrations were tied to things like um that will sound very familiar to people who maybe study, you know, other realms of Cuban life. So the fact that the revolution by this by the 80s, you know, was a a, a people born and reaching maturity in the 80s were born after the revolution. So they felt uh, a little more distant from this kind of political fervor that for people who were in the thick of revolutionary struggles of the fifties and feeling that sense of uh, collective triumph or what have you, that was a little more distant. That was something that maybe they they identified with their parents. Um, and other historians have talked uh, about this and analyzed this um, and I draw in their work like Michael Bustamante, for instance. In any case, so those, those just, like baseline generational changes um, what was part of it. Um, another important aspect was the fact that institutions that I talked about and, and their formation in that chapter three, they also ha- began to show their age um, and they were just large. Um, so you have the main, those three main companies in Havana um, having Uh, dancers that were maybe in their 40s or 50s who had yet to see the stage even 60s or 70s (laughs) Um, in some cases Alicia Alonso for instance ended up dancing into her 70s or appearing on stage so um, you have these older generation dancers who have not yet seated the stage at that point then you have all the generations of amazing dancers who were trained after the revolution who are kind of part of the companies but either waiting in the wings or feeling as though they're not being featured as much so those kind of frustrations and just this feeling of um you know a hunger to not only um have say center stage or be able to express their choreographic voice but also to say something that resonates with their own generation so you know there was um i i spoke with amazing um, choreographers um, who came of age in this 1980s moment, who talked about how, first of all, they were very inspired and in dialogue with uh, visual artists and musicians of the period, but also felt like for, they were always taught to kind of, in in socialist Cuba, we don't have um, angst. We don't have kind of these psychological needs or um, any discontent, you know, we're always happy. Um, And they were like, I was not happy waiting in the sun for food for hours. I was not happy to be thirsty or not have access to, you know, basic creature comforts. And so they wanted to kind of convey their dissatisfaction. And so that's a big shift that we see in the 80s, at least in a lot of, uh, in in terms of a lot of choreographers. Um, And another thing that we see happening is a lot of these choreographers who kind of going to your question of innovations, is we do see choreographers deciding to break out on their own. And this only starts to happen in the 80s. So the first non, you know, big national modern dance company was founded in 1981 by Lorna Birdsall, who was She was older by that point. She wasn't part of this younger generation, but perhaps that allowed her to be the first kind of the founder of a non-Main company um, because she had these connections to power, um, albeit a little less because by that point she had divorced uh, her husband, but um, she still had a lot of kind of cultural and political clout, was well-respected. Um and, and in, in short order, you have a lot of other small companies being developed in the late eighties, particularly, and this will only continue and continue to explode in the nineties um and onwards. So um that that institutional memory that I said that I was struck by um, its lasting power, there still is, you know, the Belli Nacional, the Contemporanea, but then there's like all these little tiny companies that are just like also operating, um, which I think is, is, uh, you know, a product of the fact that there was just more talent than there was space for in these larger companies. Um, so those are some uh, developments in the 90s or in the 80s. And why it matters that it happened then or recognizing kind of their vanguard role in this is um, I think that so often um, there there's a, amazing literature on the so-called special period. So the post nineteen ninety political and economic crisis that uh, Cuba entered after the fall of the Soviet Union was euphemistically called by Fidel himself a special period. Um, So there's so much amazing work on this special period. And I just felt that because so much was changing, um, scholars who are analyzing this period were like, wow, just everything was cracking open. And there were just so many Massive changes, which indeed I agree, I stopped my study before then, but I felt like there were these fractures and seeds and kind of foreshadowing of what was going to happen in the 90s by looking at the late 70s and 80s that I felt like hadn't been recognized before. And on top of that, I felt like way too much credit had been given to external forces. So, oh yes, the Soviet Union fell and therefore things you know, exploded or fell apart or what have you in Cuba. And I felt as though, no, there were young dancers and choreographers that were yelling in in their own way or, you know, gesturing uh, in their choreography for these kind of openings. So it wasn't just something that we could attribute to external forces.
1: So taking our um, conversation to something a little closer to our own times, I wondered if you could draw any connections between your book and things that are happening in the present. We've seen lots of um, massive protests in Cuba in recent days. So I don't know if you got something to say about that.
2: Yeah, I wish I had more to say. Um, I I am just watching and reading and trying to understand a very rapidly changing situation. Um, I think I'm also clouded by worry for my friends on the island and just trying to see how this will all play out, kind of holding my breath. And also um, I, I, I could have spent another several days trying to wrap my head around just what's going on. Um, but the one thing that really um, kind of sent chills down my spine was when I heard about the song Patria y Vida, um, which is um, a song which you can listen on YouTube. And it's kind of uh, playing off the, the phrase, um, uh, you know, patria or death, um, homeland or death, and now it's homeland and life. And I think it speaks to, and so there have been some discussion of how this has uh, functioned as a rallying cry and really an inspirational one at that. Um, A lot of, um, you know, um, brilliant scholars on my Twitter feed have been talking about this. And I think that it really speaks to me as someone who has spent the last 10 years thinking about how dancers were engaged politically, because I think, uh, you know, in this moment, in this, um, perhaps watershed, maybe in 50 years, when someone is being interviewed about their book, they will say 2021 was another, um, you know, big year, just like 1990 or 1959 or 1898. But in any case, um, I think that in these watershed moments and in all the more mundane moments in between, I think Cuban artists and cultural producers have played an outsized role in, um, you know, speaking to the ethos of the moment and in conveying uh, important things, uh, sentiments, emotions, frustrations, aspirations. And so, of course, my book doesn't speak about musicians at all. Not that um, I don't think musicians are phenomenally important as this moment illustrates. But I think that dancers were also saying really important things or perhaps not saying, but gesturing and um, indicating with their body. And those that my conviction that that is true was why I wrote the book. Um, So I wanted to give space and attention to those stories of those political gestures and movements that played a profound role, I think, in um shaping and being a part of this revolutionary discourse and campaign that emerged and shifted over time. So um that's not really saying much or shedding any real light on what's going on in the present, but only to point back to say that to me, when I heard that um that that reality, the the significant that song, its significance, how it spoke to people, I was not surprised at all. I was like, yep, that's that that completely jives with what I've seen over the past, you know, six decades or, and before. Um, so the significance of Cuban cultural producers in this larger um, political world.
1: We've been speaking today with Elizabeth Schwal about her new book, Dancing with the Revolution: Power, Politics, and Privilege in Cuba. Elizabeth, thanks so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.